Well, many of you are probably familiar with the language of the visible and the invisible church. When we speak of the visible and invisible church, what we're trying to articulate is that there is such thing as a visible church, churches with addresses, churches with buildings, people that say, hey, I'm a Christian. And there are many, many Christians all around the world. And then there's the invisible church. That means that those within those churches that are truly born again, that are truly followers of Christ, we acknowledge that sometimes people come to church and they're part of a visible church, but they're not necessarily true bona fide Christians. And it's hard for us to determine who's the real deal or not, because we don't judge the heart. Only the Lord knows your heart. But when we speak of the visible church, so just that which we can see, acknowledging that not everyone in the visible church is part of the invisible church. But if we're just speaking of the visible church, of the 195 countries on planet Earth, 194 of them have churches with addresses. The only country on Earth, unless this has changed very recently, that doesn't have a church with an address is the country of Saudi Arabia. But even there, Christians live. Now, when we think about that, those staggering statistics, that the church of Jesus Christ, at least in its visual, visible expression, has found its way into every single country on earth and is visibly present in 194, like basically 99.6% of the countries on earth have a church. You got to ask yourself the question, like, how did that happen? 2,000 years ago, the church was just a small collection of ragtag disciples in a context that was not in conducive to Christian faith. They were under persecution. What happened to go from a dozen or a couple dozen disciples to a church that literally is now a global international phenomenon where people are worshiping Christ even today all across the globe? Well, carrying on from chapter nine in the book of Acts, the human writer Luke emphasizes the global nature of the gospel, that the gospel is an international message of submission and salvation in God. Not only did Jesus commission his disciples in Matthew 28 to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but his spirit went before his disciples and prepared people's hearts, some of whom had never had an encounter with a bona fide Christian, and then the Spirit of God also pushed Christians out of their comfort zones, pushed them across linguistic boundaries, pushed them across ethnic boundaries. So the gospel quickly started to spread even beyond the Jews to various Gentiles. Now, if you read the Old Testament, the Old Covenant scriptures, maybe is a better way of putting it, the people of God from the time of Abraham onward, were primarily the descendants of Abraham, Jews, Israelites. So the vast majority of believers were of Abrahamic descent. Now, every once in a while, Gentiles would see the light. They'd come to faith in the true and living God. We think of women like Rahab the harlot, who was a Gentile that became part of God's covenantal community, or Ruth the Moabitess, or even Uriah the Hittite, these are all people of Gentile origin that came to faith in the true and living God. But mostly, for the most part, the vast majority of Gentiles were considered enemies of God, outside of God's covenantal promises. Well, here we find ourselves in the New Testament, and all of those barriers, those cultural, ethnic, historical barriers start to come crashing down as the gospel arrests Jews at Pentecost and then suddenly starts to leap out across those ethnic barriers and Gentile people start to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But before that happens, or at least at the beginning of that happening, God first worked in the hearts of Jewish believers to soften them to their historic animosity about Gentiles, to push them out of their comfort zone so that they might bring the gospel to Gentiles. And here we have God changing the heart and mind of a man like Peter. And there's many examples throughout church history of this happening, where people in a particular ethnic group, from a particular background, the Lord softened their heart. They learned a new language, or they traveled to a far-off country, 
or they started mingling and interacting with people that humanly you might be kind of disinterested in or even repulsed by, and the gospel became a global phenomenon. Now, when God changes our relationships and prepares us for engaging people with the gospel, he often does a work in our own hearts first, because by nature, we discriminate against people. By nature, we have prejudices. By nature, there's people we want to be with, and there's people we don't want to be with. There's groups we enjoy associating with, and there's groups we don't enjoy associating with. So God has to get our hearts in place first. And oftentimes, the way God gets our hearts in place is he he changes the rules a little bit. He removes some of the barriers that otherwise perhaps hindered relationships. So in verses 9 to 16, we have God, this message that God prepares us for gospel ministry. And you're really not going to be successful if you're not prepared by God, because it's not not just a human interchange, it's a spiritual interchange, a supernatural interchange. God prepares us for the gospel, and he does so with, with Peter by changing the rules, literally changing the rules of engagement. Last Sunday, when I was preaching the passage leading up to this, we were introduced very briefly to a centurion, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. Now, the name Cornelius, in my ears, isn't a bad name. My father-in-law's name is Cornelius. It's not a bad name. But Peter would have heard within that, oh, that's a Gentile name. And then his occupation, oh, he's a Roman soldier. The Romans put Christ to death. He's an army officer. He was in control of 100 men, so he's got a little bit of stature. He wasn't just bottom of the totem pole. Like There's some responsibility there. And we saw there that God had given Cornelius a dream to send a delegation to summons Simon Peter to his house. Now over here, what we see now in verse 9 and following is God is also giving a dream to Peter. So he's prepared the Gentile, who's not yet a convert, but is a God-fearer. And over here, he's preparing the apostle, the Jewish apostle, steeped in a history of animosity toward Gentiles, steeped in a history of dietary laws that forbade him to eat with and fellowship with Gentiles. And here's what God does in this encounter. Acts Acts 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So that's a good thing. He's consulting the Lord. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending. You sort of picture in your mind maybe a big white bed sheet. But we don't know exactly what it looked like. But it was something like, the text tells us, a sheet. And it's kind of a weird thing, but it's being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it are all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air like a giant petting zoo. I go, where is this going? There came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I am a vegan. No, he didn't say that. But he does have a problem with God's command. He says, by no means, Lord, For I have never eaten anything that's common or unclean. In other words, it wasn't the idea of eating meat that grossed him out. But for centuries, there had been prohibitions on what kind of meat you could and couldn't eat. And God just removed those. And this made him incredibly uncomfortable. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So by one divine decree, God dismisses centuries-old rules that he himself had put in place for what the Jews could and could not eat. Now, you, you may have your own dietary preferences. Maybe you just really like kosher. Fine. Maybe you are a vegan. Fine. Maybe you're one of those newfangled people that have a special taste for lab grown meat. Okay, that's that's weird. 
But perhaps some might have that taste. We're not going to excommunicate you from the church. You do have to sit in the back row, however. But for any number of reasons, we may have dietary choices, things we like, things we don't like. It's like, oh, that's kind of icky. This, this is something I really enjoy. But here, this is a little bit different. God deletes the dietary laws that the Jews had been accustomed to for centuries, and now they could eat what they wanted. Now, it's one thing to have permission to eat what you want, It's quite a different thing to overcome centuries of practice and to actually feel comfortable doing it. Maybe you've experienced this on a lesser level, a different way in your own spiritual life. You grew up in a really conservative church, or you grew up in a different culture, and there's things you did in that culture or that church that were kind of enforced. They were enforced by the church. They were enforced by your culture, your ethnic group, to the point that maybe you started to think of them almost as divine in origin. And then you grow older and you meet people outside of your ethnicity, or you start to read the Bible and you're like, oh, that was an ecclesiastical, a church prohibition, but it's not a biblical prohibition. Or that was something that just came from my ethnic background. And we we thought eating this was weird, but now I eat it all the time and I love it. So I'm sure we've all had experiences where we've, we've transitioned a bit from one set of rules to a bit more of an open view on certain things. But Peter had not only that, he had an extra hurdle to overcome. God had literally forbade it up till now. And God is changing the rules now. So we have the sheet comes down. It's filled with everything you can imagine. Birds, reptiles, animals. And naturally... Peter recoils in disgust. And you can't really blame him for it. You can't really blame him for it. It's very understandable. I mean, in the West, so if I look out here, I'm guessing you've all probably had fish. I suppose you probably eat things like chicken or turkey, beef, pork, these sorts of things that are common in the Western diet. But suppose I invited you over and I said, uh, we're having German shepherd burgers or bald eagle fingers with plum sauce. They're like, it's kind of weird. No, thank you. I don't eat dogs. I don't eat vultures and eagles. Just not not, not the kind of thing we eat. So there, there's these natural berries. You can understand it in in Peter's position. Now in Windsor, maybe, maybe we're a bit more ethnically diverse, so we're used to sort of sampling different ethnic diets, but you got to put yourself in his shoes. This was, a, this was a hard command from God. Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And it grossed him out. Now the question is, Why is this in the Bible? Is it just about dietary laws? No. Now, because of this, we can eat bacon, which is not such a bad thing. I don't want to limit its quantities. But we can eat bacon. We have the book of Galatians, which backs that up. But why is this in the Bible? Why does God remove these dietary laws after thousands of years of having said otherwise? And what does this event have to do with his imminent encounter with a Gentile centurion soldier by the name of Cornelius? What's the tie-in? Well, the key is in the statement that God makes, and he makes it three times, we're told in the Bible. What God has made clean, do not call common. In other words, what God has made clean, do not call forbidden, do not call this gross, do not call this inappropriate, do not call this sin. And God says it three times because in the Bible, repetition serves to enforce God's emphatic commands to his people. And he's providing a new law here. Now, of course, there was never anything innately immoral, innately immoral, meaning connected to the character of God, about Jewish dietary laws. There are certain laws in the Bible that are innately immoral. Murder, for example, it never has an expiry date to it. It's a a commandment for all of time. You don't murder people. Adultery is always wrong. But some laws were put in place by God 
for purposes of instruction, for purposes of sanctification, to make a specific point or lesson. And the Jewish dietary laws, I mean, very, very practically, they, they certainly serve to enforce early health standards, especially in ancient times. I mean, there's that practical aspect to it. It's secondary, but there's a practical aspect to it. God said, hey, pigs, I don't really want you eating pigs. They tend to, we know now, be more likely to have parasites, but you can eat cattle. They're, they eat grass. You can eat doves. They eat seeds. Oh, I don't want to eat vultures. They eat dead things. So there's a certain logic to it, especially in ancient times. But more important than that even is that they were symbols of separation and sanctification. God often puts physical measures in place, which in and of themselves may not be sinful or holy, but they symbolize something important to God. We see this in the, in the dress coats that were placed upon the priests of Israel. They dressed in certain garments and had the ephods and the tabernacle was designed in a certain way. It was symbolic. The, the physical object taught you something, told you something, reminded you of something. And the fact that the Jews had different dietary laws reminded them that they were different. They were set apart. They had a different way of worshiping and they had a different way of eating. And the eating reminded them of God's plan for them to be separate, to be distinct, to be different than the nations around them. Now, in the same way, here's the tie-in. There's nothing innately unclean about being born a Gentile. I mean, after all, Jews and Gentiles all come from the same people, Adam and Eve. We're all from Adam and Eve. But Gentiles were not children of the Abrahamic covenant. And so why are these laws put in place to separate Jews from Gentiles? But now God has a new plan. And he comes to Peter, who's about to be commissioned to go see a Gentile Roman centurion. And the first thing he does, going from the lesser challenge to the greater challenge, is he changes the dietary laws. You know, sometimes we need to experience change in lesser areas, if you might put it this way, in easier areas, before we're prepped for change in greater areas. And so this was all part of God's plan of helping Peter to overcome some of the stigma, some of the barriers that he naturally would have had in his interaction with Cornelius. Peter had to overcome the stigma of eating geckos, things of that nature, before he was prepared to meet this Gentile. So God works in his heart. Now, he's not, the, the lesson is not complete yet. He's still trying to figure it out, but we now see where this is going. And this prepares for him for a change in relationships. And the gospel does that. It breaks down barriers. It breaks down those, those ethnic walls. There are some religions in our world today, global religions, that are still limited more or less to a small ethnic group or related ethnic groups. You know, Islam is a global phenomenon, but it's very much tied to the culture of the Middle East to the point that even the religious garb is still Middle Eastern in nature. Hinduism is very much tied you know, to India and to Nepal and to that area of the world. It's very much connected to certain ethnicities. But from the very, and it's been that way for thousands of years, but from the very beginning, God's plan was for Christianity to be a multi-ethnic global phenomenon. And so God starts to change relationships. And there's two aspects of this change that are presented to us. Look at verse 17 and following. The first is, is that Peter now, A, meets, which isn't usual, and B, receives Gentile visitors into his home. You might think that's not, that's not abnormal. That's very abnormal. Very out of the norm for a man in Peter's position. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, so he's still thinking it over, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to whither Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. 
And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them. Next two words, important, without hesitation. For I have sent them. He was hesitant about the food. He was pondering the message. But when it came to a flesh on flesh encounter, God's like, there's no hesitation here. I want you to go down and I want you to meet these people without hesitation. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? He doesn't quite know yet. God is slowly pushing Peter forward. Hasn't quite told him the full mission yet. And they said, Cornelius, oh, that's a Gentile name, a centurion, the centurions just crucified my Lord, an upright and God-fearing man, how can that be? He's a Gentile. Think of how like every statement is, whoa, 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 this is challenging my, my norms, this is challenging my worldview, this, this, this is weird. But God just keeps laying it on, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, really? was directed by a holy angel, God directs Gentiles to send for you to come to his house. Jews don't go into Gentiles' houses and to hear what you have to say. The Gentiles haven't listened to us for centuries. So do you see how amazing this is that all these barriers are being torn down right in front of him and it's got to make Peter very, very uncomfortable. But, but look what he does. It says, so he invited them in to be his guests. And there you see the barriers are coming down. This Jewish man, having heard from God that a Gentile wants to talk to him, having seen the sheet descend, is starting to put the pieces together and he breaks centuries of customs and he invites the Gentiles into his residence. Now, we need to understand that instead inviting someone of Gentile heritage into a Jewish house was not only a massive cultural hurdle, but it also opened you to um, public shame, perhaps, some accusations of compromise from your normal sphere of influence. You'll find this when you share the gospel with people that are outside of your circle of influence. Sometimes people might wonder, are you compromising? Like, well, why would you be talking to them? They don't look like you. They're not of your background, of your political persuasion. But what this passage helps us to understand is that we should never put arbitrary barriers between us and potential converts to erect artificial or arbitrary walls under the new covenant. This doesn't mean that it's a free-for-all. This doesn't mean that you don't exercise some care as to who you literally would invite into your home. I mean, if someone moves into your neighborhood and you know they're a sexual predator, you don't necessarily invite them in with your little children. You might want to meet them at the coffee shop, but you, you know, there's some, some common sense that needs to be exercised here. But when it comes to erecting walls that cut us off from groups of people or from individuals that are expressing an interest, that's where we need to be sensitive to God's spirit and willing to do whatever is necessary. Some of you are perhaps by background very comfortable outside of your ethnic group or your linguistic group. For others of you, you know, all of your friends, all of your immediate family members, all of your church experience might be more or less within one homogenous group, and this might be uncomfortable for you. Well, God makes us uncomfortable at times. You need to be willing to step past those barriers. There might be times when God brings someone into our, our circle of influence who has previously been part of a group that has offended, offended us or persecuted us. And I, don't, I don't want to talk to that kind of a person, but the barrier needs to be torn down. And Peter is willing to be pushed and stretched in this regard. So he bites him into the house. And then the next day, so they obviously stayed over. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, so we're talking one, two, three days now. It took a little while to get to Caesarea. They entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So here we see the Gentile 
calling his Gentile pals and family into the house. He was a Roman army officer, so he's almost demonstrating more inclusivity than perhaps the believing community would normally be marked by. Because he was opening himself up to stigma too. You got Jews in your house? You're a Roman officer. We just put their leader to death. So he's, he's opening his home. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Peter makes the trip. It turns out to be very worthwhile. Now, he does have to correct Cornelius because Cornelius kind of participates in this little act of idolatry and he worships Peter. Now, it's wrong, but I would say it's more of a sin of ignorance than a deliberate sin trying to somehow diminish the power of the true and living God. And you will find this with lost people all the time. You may have an audience with them. They may do or say things and you, you're like, that's not right. And you have to gently and graciously correct. And you got to determine, like, are they being deliberately sinful or is it more of a sin of ignorance? I remember Susie and I invited some Hindu people to our church many years ago. They'd never been in a Christian church. And they came into the church with food offerings to offer to the idols. And there was kind of this moment where we didn't want to embarrass them. We're like, oh, thanks for the food. We'll, we'll feed it to the worship team, you know. But they'd never been in a church. And they thought, well, that's what you do. You, you bring food to the Hindu temple. You put it on the altar. It's, it's a sacrifice to your gods. It's a sin of ignorance. So, you, you know, he has to correct Cornelius here. But then Peter enters his house literally steps into his house, which in and of itself is a major step forward for Peter and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Peter explains God's vision for humanity. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean so when I was sent for you, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. I love the fact that he's super vulnerable and he's real and he acknowledges his personal discomfort. He acknowledges his cultural discomfort. He acknowledges his historical religious discomfort. And at the same time, declares God's intention for the Gentiles. This is uncomfortable. I never expected to be here but I came and I'm available. How can I help you? I love that, that mindset, which is one for us all to aspire after. I also think it's very interesting and maybe even telling that Peter still didn't seem to know fully why he was there. So you look at the sequence of events. He'd been used by God to raise Tabitha from the dead, Remember he spent time at Simon the Tanner's house? A Jewish man that was considered out clean, lived up by the sea because tanneries stunk and it was outside the city. Jews weren't seafaring people. It wasn't a great place to live. But Peter had spent time with him. That pushed him a little bit out of his comfort zone. Then he has the vision that makes him really uncomfortable. Then Gentile visitors. Now he's at a Roman centurion's house. And step by step, God is pushing him forward. You know, God may not always reveal the next step for you when he calls you into a redemptive relationship or a ministry opportunity, but our responsibility is to be faithful today. We may not know what's going to happen tomorrow. God's like, this is, this is what I want you to do today. Here's a vision. This is what I want you to do today. Go answer the door. Once you've answered the door, say this. The next day, get up and travel with them. But he doesn't necessarily know what the next day and the next day and the next day is going to Hold, step by step, we must obey and just see where God leads us. Perhaps if we knew the whole story, the whole assignment, the, the, the assignment from beginning to end, it might be a little intimidating, don't you think? But if you're serving in ministry right now and you've been doing it maybe for months or years, 
you might look back and think, man, there's so much has happened. If I knew from the beginning that's what God was going to put me through, I might have cut and run at the beginning. But step by step, as you are faithful, God has been faithful to you as well. Cornelius is an individual in the text, but what we need to understand is that he also represents a collective people, the Gentiles. So he is, if not the first, he's the second Gentile convert. The only reason why I say that, some people believe that the Ethiopian eunuch, by virtue of the fact that he was studying the Isaiah scroll, might have been Jewish in his background serving the queen of Ethiopia. In which case, he would be a Jewish convert. And that's possible, we don't really know. Cornelius is definitely Gentile. So if, if the Ethiopian eunuch is the first Gentile convert, then Cornelius is the second. Either way, this is a new thing. This is not something that the apostles had witnessed before now. But Cornelius represents a new receptive Gentile population who wants to hear, which is critical to saving faith, who wants to hear God's laws. The nations are now believing in God. Verse 30 and 33, 30 through 33. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. That's repeated. God had actually revealed to Cornelius the place Peter was, the name of the owner, the occupation of the owner. And I think that Cornelius would have known enough about the Jewish faith to say, okay, this makes me a little more comfortable. God is asking me to invite a Jewish man into my house who clearly already has some level of comfort with unclean people. And so he tells Peter that what God had said. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. When have Gentiles done this before? They're running the other way. God says to Israel, you need to hear. You need to hear. The Bible talks about the gospel going out, the need for us to hear it. Now the Gentiles asking to hear it. Why didn't God just spill the beans and avoid this travel time for Peter? Why didn't God four days earlier just give him the whole package? Hey, Cornelius, let me tell you about Jesus. This is what happened. This is, what, this is the faith you need to exercise. Why did God go through this four-day extended ordeal to bring a human instrument to share the gospel with Cornelius? Well, brothers and sisters, here's one of the things that we need to believe simultaneously in Scripture. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign over all salvations. He is absolutely sovereign over all salvations. We see, you can like it or dislike it, but we see from the selection of the patriarchs onward, the electing grace of God in the salvation process. You just can't deny it. It's right there. But at the same time, God uses human instruments to accomplish his redemptive purpose. Think about that. He uses human instruments to accomplish his redemptive purposes. The gospel is face-to-face. -face. It's incarnational. It's relational. God is sovereign in salvation, but he uses human beings to accomplish his redemptive plan. You might recall Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Here's what it says about preaching and hearing and how God, what God uses to share his plan. Verse 14 and 15 of Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe of him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
So God is sovereign. We don't deny that at all. But God uses people, churches, faithful apostles, some of whom have to be pushed out of their comfort zone into awkward, socially awkward, culturally awkward situations to bring the gospel to bear. One of the things I have noticed in my pastoral ministry as I observe how churches operate and think of my own history and interact with pastors of different backgrounds is that so many very good pastors in very godly congregations spend like 100% of their time fine-tuning their doctrine, ministering to their people, counseling their people, getting the marriages right, educating the children, preaching hard, worshiping effectively. And yet they never interact with the crowd. They never interact with the world. Now, to be sure, you can grow your church without going outside the doors of the church. You just keep having kids. You can grow your church through reproductive growth. You can even hope that maybe once in a while someone will drive by and suddenly just have a desire to go to church and turn in the driveway. And once in a while, an unbeliever will come into a Christian church and hear the gospel and get saved. And that does happen, but that's all too common. Or churches across our country that they have the gospel right, they're faithful, they love Christ, but they just never grow. And you know what their excuse often is? Well, it must not be God's plan. But then you begin to assess and you're analyzing, but you guys don't, you don't have any points of connection with the world. Where are your Corneliuses? Like, where, where, where do I see you going out into the proverbial highways and byways of life? to reach people with the gospel. Effective Christians know that an evangelist first by definition must meet the crowd before he can plant a church. You have to meet people that aren't saved and lead them to faith in Jesus Christ before you have a church. This is why we're called to do the work of an evangelist. Now, lest you doubt this, you can observe all across the country of Canada from one coast to the next, numerous Faithful churches that have plateaued. They preach the gospel. They, they are effective in communicating the word of God to their people. But they're often led by people who don't seem to either know how to interact with lost people or don't really care enough to interact with lost people or who have never developed the skills to interact with lost people. But when you examine the ministry of Peter, you examine the ministry of Paul, You look at life in the early church. It wasn't all in-house ministry. They were outside all the time. They they preached the gospel. They preached the word of God, but they also planted churches. For instance, early Christians debated in the public square. They confronted political powers. They traveled to lost communities. They ate with Gentiles. They preached not just in the church, in the the house churches, but they preached in public. They gave food to widows and orphans. They were preachers, but they were also evangelists. It's not either or. We all need to grow in our ability to preach and articulate the gospel, but also to evangelize the world. And this is what brings growth to the people of God. Now, again, is God sovereign over that? Yeah, but don't blame God for what you're not doing that you're supposed to be doing. Now, what is the content of the gospel? Well, Peter preached a sermon about God's call to submit, and he invited people to receive Christ. You know that throughout the word of God, there's various sermons, various individuals that are preaching and sharing the gospel all through the New Testament. The gospel isn't always preached in the exact same way. It's not like the exact words, the same sermon. We just, you know, hit the replay button. It's not always preached in the exact same way, but the true gospel has all the basic elements present in it. And here we have Peter's sermon. So Peter opens his mouth, verse 34, and he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. You're like, just a second, no partiality. I remember the Canaanites and the Jews. I've read the election passages. 
in this very text, in verse 41, he talks about choosing the apostles. So what are you talking about? No partiality. It's clearly partial. But he's not partial from a human perspective. This does not contradict the doctrines of election or God's choosing of the apostles, but he's articulating that he is impartial with regard to your nationality and what you bring to the table. God is not interested in you because you have a leg up over someone else in the area of your moral performance. He didn't look through the tunnel of time and say, you know what, that Aaron Rock guy, he's a pretty good dude. I think under the right circumstances, he'd probably make a pretty good Christian. So because of his goodness, I'm going to point my finger at him. It's actually a word that reminds us of the need for grace. Because none of us, by definition, seek after God. There may be different degrees to which we sin. And some are more public and vicious in their sins than others. But you don't bring anything to the table. And yet at the same time, there's certain conduct that are supposed to mark your life. Listen to this. But in every nation, which is again a pretty shocking thing for a Jew to say, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You're like, aha, so it is based on works. It is based on works. Well, read on. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all, which by the way is foundational to the gospel. Too many people, oh, the gospel is the actual conversion message. Well, it's, that is very much core to the gospel. But you know what the precursor to, to surrender to Christ is? He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is your authority, whether you acknowledge it or not. And we need to remind our, our, our culture of that. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses, which is a primary qualification of apostleship, of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, crucifixion, but they raised him on the third day and made him to appear, resurrection, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. When we preach to lost people, especially as Reformed Protestants, I understand there's this desire to be as clear and as articulate and as systematic as possible. We want to make sure we get everything right, the order right. You know, we got sin, consequence, judgment, savior, solution, sanctification, glorification. We taught a sermon series in our church here on the, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, all the various aspects of how God saves theologically. You know, we got election and predestination, and we got calling, and we throw justification in there and conversion and justification, sanctification, glorification right through. Order it all out. Make sure it's in logical order that's reflective of good theology. I get it. And we like to be clear. We like to be clear. And there is a certain logic and correct order to how God saves people. But here, we need to see it not so much as an orderly event, but we need to see it as a sermon within which Peter is painting a picture of what a disciple of Jesus Christ is and looks like. And this helps us to understand that verse 35 isn't contrary to what is stated later, which talks about the need to believe in and receive Christ, as if somehow you're saved by your righteousness. But the section is intended to paint a picture and to present us with the whole of the Christian life. What is a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, all the elements are there. Maybe not in the order you would normally present them, but check this out. Who, who would deny, for example, that a disciple of Christ practices righteousness? Nobody would deny that. Who would deny that 
the basis of faith is the sacrifice of Christ. Nobody would deny that. Who would deny that we must believe and receive? Nobody would deny that. Who would deny that forgiveness is in his name? No one would deny that. It's all there as a package. But the fact that works is mentioned first doesn't suggest that works is the entrance into the life of discipleship, but it's certainly a necessary mark of true saving faith, of being a disciple in Jesus Christ. And I'll just say this, if Peter was comfortable preaching it in that order, then we must be comfortable accepting it in that order. Back in Acts chapter 2, we have what we call Pentecost, but that's not entirely accurate. It was on the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, that's true, so we can call it Pentecost. But actually, there's two Pentecosts of sorts in the book of Acts, in the sense that there's not a second Jewish feast called Pentecost, but there's a second outpouring of the Spirit. The primary purpose of the first Pentecost was so that Jewish converts might receive the fullness of God's Holy Spirit. And Jewish converts had come in from all over the world, some that still spoke Hebrew and others that didn't. And so God pours out his spirit on these saved people. And suddenly they're gifted with tongues, which is the old English word for languages. And they have the ability now to suddenly communicate the gospel in languages they've never learned. So all of a sudden the gospel jumps over all of these linguistic barriers and Jews from all the nations are starting to come to faith in God. But what about the Gentiles? Well, here we have what we could call the Gentile Pentecost. And it's very similar to Acts 2. The gospel equips nations here to reach nations. So in Pentecost, the first Pentecost, the spirit is poured out. But what is the result of that? Jews are equipped to reach Jews. Here, the spirit is poured out and it's super awesome. But the result is these Gentiles are now equipped to reach Gentiles. Look what it says. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised, that is the Jews that had accompanied him, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. So again, the Lord is just breaking down all these barriers that were in their minds for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declares, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now there's a few thoughts here I want to draw out. The first is this. It's noteworthy that a God, God then again, as he did at first Pentecost, gifts them to speak in languages they had never learned. So they could, Cornelius and his family, who presumably all spoke the same language, they're all Italians, could then go and take the gospel to others. So he equips them again. There's such an emphasis in the whole book. Global, 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 international, nation after nation. Now they're equipped to rapidly take the gospel to, to various Gentile groups. Secondly, baptism follows belief. And in fact, it follows belief in every single New Testament example. Baptism always follows belief. And at the moment of their salvation from the Jewish Pentecost onward and from the Gentile Pentecost onward, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer immediately. It's pretty cool. And he then equips you and secures you and seals you unto God. There was also this interesting statement here that they're to be baptized in Jesus' name. You're like, oh man, I've read Matthew 28. It says, baptize him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, What's Peter doing here? Is this bad theology? Well, baptism in Jesus' name is not a formula meant to overturn the Trinitarian formula that we see in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. It is, one could say, a short form. 
And in this context, we shouldn't have a big problem with it because they had just experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit poured out upon them and they had heard word of submission to God. So there's a, a Trinitarian environment, you could say, that they're finding themselves in. I mean, the, the Father's being talked about, the Spirit's being talked about. Jesus here is being mentioned in their, their baptismal declaration. So there is a Trinitarian uh, dimension to this. Now, I think while it's a short form, we want to be clear in our baptismal services. So we do baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't say it's a sin if someone is aware of the Holy Spirit and the Father to be baptized in the name of Jesus. But here's where we have to be very careful. There are some Christian groups today that baptized in Jesus' name only for theological reasons. It's because they deny the triunity of God. And in that respect, when we baptize in Jesus' name and the, Son's, uh, and the Spirit's name and the Father's name, not only is it giving the full Christian baptismal formula, but it's also a polemic, an apologetic against those who would deny Trinitarian theology. Well, having heard this message, church, we've been reminded that our preaching is, on one hand, a very human affair. God uses flesh and blood to reach flesh and blood. And in that process, he tears down barriers. He removes stigma. He removes unnecessary roadblocks that we might have put up. And at the same time, it's very much of a supernatural affair where God does what only God can do, where God equips in a way that only God can equip. So why would we not then want to be faithful in our witness, knowing that God changes people through the gospel that he's called us to declare? Let me land the plane by saying this. Some of you probably are quite comfortable mingling with and talking with all sorts of people. But most of us probably have a few little barriers and walls that we've erected in our lives. And we may sort of have a classification of people that we show no interest in and classification of people that we do show interest in. But if we're going to be salt and light for Christ, especially in a very diverse city like our own, we need to learn to be comfortable ministering outside of our ethnic group and most certainly outside of our church. So think about this. Who are the people that God has placed on your radar that he hasn't placed on mine or in your circle of influence that he hasn't placed on mine? Maybe some people you work with or you're, you go to school with or some family members. Is everyone going to be ripe and ready for you? No, some people are going to push you away. But if you keep your antennas up, your, your ears open, your eyes peeled, the Lord will bring you more people than you can probably possibly handle. And your job is to share the truth with them. And you can admit, this is uncomfortable. I've never talked to a person like you before. But I want to do it because God has called me to. And then just share the gospel of Jesus Christ and allow God to do what only God can do. So let's make that commitment to the glory of God and in keeping with the Great Commission. 